This is Until All Are Free. I'm your host, Preston Goff. Something that brings me great satisfaction as a podcaster is the fact that I have the opportunity to introduce you, my dear listener, to incredible people and organizations that I believe deserve more of a place in the spotlight. Today's show guest is Joel Karam. He's the CEO and co-founder of Ezekiel Rain, a faith-based anti-trafficking organization that is strategically fighting exploitation through strengthening and healing the core building block of any person in every society, the family. Ezekiel Rain operates in Thailand, a quality that we share with them here at the Exodus Road. Although the Exodus Road isn't a faith-based organization, we often meet others who are bringing freedom to children, women, and men living in modern-day slavery who are. We believe that the collective community of organizations involved in anti-trafficking is positioned to set a table with survivors at the center where anyone dedicated to this work can have a place. The fight for a free world needs a diverse community with everyone filling their own unique role. So that said, I am honored to share this conversation with Joel when he visited our U.S. office in Colorado Springs. We talked about why Ezekiel Rain is so committed to building up resilient families how pornography can impact cycles of exploitation like sex trafficking, why ending human trafficking will require that we restore victims and perpetrators, and so much more. All right, well, I am thrilled to welcome Joel Karen with Ezekiel Rain to the podcast today. Joel, you are the CEO and co-founder of Ezekiel Rain. Is that correct? That's correct. That's right. Yeah, you're also on our Thai board here yes. at the Exodus Road. So really two points of connection already. And then I've learned of a third connection that I am excited about, which is that we both have spent some time in the Northwest Arkansas area. That's a bit of a rare thing for me to encounter people yeah. in, uh, <laughs> that, that share that experience. I grew up there, and I know you spent some time there. But I wonder if you might just begin by introducing yourself to our audience, both in a personal and in a professional capacity. Well, personally, I... I was born and raised in Thailand, and so I've lived there for quite a quite a few years now. I'm sure we'll get more into that into that a little bit more later on. I am married, have six children, and they're kind of spread out all over the globe at this point. And I live in Thailand currently. That's where we work. Ezekiel Rain is based in Thailand. We have a, a 501c3 that's registered in Northwest Arkansas, in Salem Springs, Arkansas, actually. So professionally, I'm I'm co-founder and CEO of Ezekiel Rain. We work on the ground there in Thailand, and we are involved in fighting human trafficking. I wonder if you might just share with me, why is it that human trafficking of all the social causes that one could be dedicated to today, why is it that that human trafficking has caught your attention? Well, it wasn't like I intentionally was looking for a, a cause or something to sort of give my life to or a career change or anything like that. You know, I was exposed to the issue a number of years ago. And so I began to research more and began to try to find ways to get involved from a fundraising perspective. But then the more I kind of researched and investigated, the more it kind of pulled me in. And I remember as a child, there were obviously connections and relationships. I was pretty close to the to different members of the of village families that lived around us. It was a really pretty tight-knit community. And I would remember playing with some of the kids that were my age and older 
And some of the girls would leave the village to go work in the city. And they'd be gone for a, a matter of you know months up to a year, and then they'd return back. And I remember thinking as a kid even how different they would seem. They'd come back and they would engage very different. I remember just thinking, she seems really sad. She doesn't seem, she doesn't joke around with me or play the way that she used to. And now I don't know that in all of those cases, she would have been trafficked for sure. But I think as an adult recognizing the process and particularly the target of uh, Northeastern Thailand, where some of those girls came from, that that's really what I was encountering, at least in some of those situations. And so my heart just began to break for the issue of human trafficking and wanting to understand how do we engage in this in a country that I love, the people that I love, how can I be a part of the solution? How can I make a connection back to that country of, of, of my birth and, and help out with this issue? As you began to understand some of the realities of what human trafficking actually looked like on the ground in Thailand, I wonder if you could walk us through, like, what was the process for kind of determining where you would want to offer a solution as Ezekiel Rain? Yeah. Uh, you know, there definitely was a lot of, of just time of reflection and also connecting with the other family that went with us, our, my co-founder, Callie Wessels and her family, and really just sort of going through this process together of who is it that we are called to be? What's our expression? She'd also been in Thailand and been in Southeast Asia. And so it began to form some things early on that obviously have, some of those things have shifted over time and some of those things have remained constant. But, you know, today, who we are today has its roots in that. But a lot of it is you've got to get in and get your hands dirty and, and recognize what's working and what are the things that we need to adjust in terms of our tactical approach. The strategies remained the same since the beginning. You know, prevention and, and restoration or, or healing for trauma victims has always been a part of who we are. Family has always been a, an important key part of who we are. Our expression of our faith through prayer has always been a key part of who we are from the, from the very beginning. I know I didn't prep you on this question, but I am, I'm curious to know what, what's behind the name Ezekiel Rain. Yeah, Ezekiel Rain comes from a passage of Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 25, where it talks about this representation of blessing or the manifestation of blessing being showers of blessing on those people who were oppressed and who were mistreated and who were, who were taken advantage of. And so you can, you can read some of that for yourself, and it, it's pretty descriptive language, but Ezekiel Rain kind of came out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So I know you've already mentioned it a bit, but you kind of hinted at some of the programmatic focuses, yeah. right, of prioritizing family. I wonder if you might just talk a little bit about what programs have been shaped out of the, yeah. the realities you're seeing. Well, I think to start out with our, if you if we if we really tried to identify what's the key one key programmatic focus of Ezekiel Rain, it's really breaking cycles of brokenness. We really believe that hurt people end up hurting others as well, but healed people heal others, and we want to see the freed bringing freedom. And so we want to establish programs and processes that break the cycle of exploitation and brokenness. We want to overcome that cycle with wholeness and freedom. And so we feel like that then influences every program that we have. And that's, number one, strengthening families. 
Two is healing trauma. Three is fighting pornography. Four is raising up leaders. And five is prayer. And so we bring those elements into just about every program, every initiative that we do there in Thailand. And so that's reflected in, in really four main projects for us. Our Resilient Families Project, which is this 18-month intensive mentorship, wellness, economic. There's five different areas that we focus on with them. It helps fortify vulnerable families. And we have our Restore program, which is counseling, reintegration, case management. It's trauma training initiatives. And the, the point here is healing and empowering catalysts to bring freedom to others. So people who've come out of trafficking or have been victims of abuse, of trauma in their own lives that we are bringing about this restorative process through curriculum that we've written in-house and then believing that, that freed people bring freedom to others as well. And then we have a program we call Free Indeed, which is uh, really about fighting pornography. It's resource development. We have an original book series. We've begun social media campaigns, training, recovery, support group to prevent, but also to restore those that have been ensnared in this issue of pornography or have an addiction to this issue of pornography. And then our upper room program, which is we want to address the roots of trafficking by mobilizing individuals, our team as a whole, through community prayer. And it's a strategy for us to combat exploitation and trauma. I want to ask a follow-up to Resilient Families and that, that programmatic focus for you. I've heard of many different programs that will offer some sort of intensive one-on-one -on -one engagement with either a survivor or someone who would be potentially vulnerable to, to trafficking, but never in a family context. Mm -hmm. I think that seems like a really unique approach. And I wonder if you might just talk about why coming alongside families specifically is so critical and even what that looks like. I know you mentioned it's 18 months, but what's involved in that? Yeah, well, we really believe, I mean, it's, the, the truth is families are the core building block of society. It's where healing and wholeness really begins. Uh, and if you want to impact a culture, you want to impact a society, a nation, you've got to start with the family. Resilience is taught in the context of family. And so we feel like when we want to look at an issue like human trafficking and we want to go to the root cause, there's a lot of root causes that have been identified over the years, but the one that we feel like is, is key, is critical, is to build resilience into people that they can respond to different circumstances that may happen. It may be poverty. It may be really challenging situations in life, but they have a resilience and an ability to respond to that that comes from a strength that originated in, in family, in the family context, perhaps. It's, again, it's breaking that cycle as well because, you know, brokenness begets brokenness. Do you, do you happen to have any examples or stories of families who have been identified and committed to this resilient families process and, yeah. and what that's meant for them? Yeah, I mean, I, we've got a number of stories. A very particular one that I want to tell you today is about a second marriage family in a remote tribal area, had two kids, one of which was the mothers from a previous marriage where the husband was sentenced to prison. I don't remember why he was in prison, but this family was, I mean, extreme violence, beating, very destructive behavior. 
the parents weren't able to control their emotions. They're constantly exploding, just a very angry, violent home. The kids were kind of lived in this state of terror, especially the stepchild worried about his stepfather's anger and reaction and temper tantrums and that kind of thing. They were just out of control. And the mother had worked in a bar since she was 15 years old. The father didn't want to work, just kind of hung out you know, at home. They were basically considered by the other villagers. It's just a, that's the crazy family, sort of ostracized and like, hey, we're, you know, just don't We don't, we don't even have time for them they, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and through the process, this 18-month commitment they make where we bring them in, give them understanding of what, what does a healthy family look like and help them practice some of these things together. How, yeah. do you, how do you have conversations around the dinner table rather than just eating and going your separate ways or eating separately or, or whatever? How do we create communication and a context for health within a family structure is revolutionary to some people, you know, for sure. So now this, this home is, is really, it's, it's marked by peace by love, it's become this lighthouse home to others. Um, the children are super close to their mother and father. They're thriving in school and life. The father has understood better what it means to have this relationship with his stepchild and to attach to her as a father. They, they have, through the process, really begun to become leaders in their area. They've established sort of this uh, place of worship, of prayer together as a family and for others in the village as well. They've used everything that they've learned in this Resilient Families program to help others. So this really fits the model where the freed bringing freedom. We want people to, to take the tools, the understanding, the, the attitudes, and then to share those things with others in their communities as well. They've put up an ad on Facebook reaching out to others like who have, whose marriages or families are in crisis. Uh, they've converted a building next to their home to, to the home that they live in right now in the village as a safe house for families in crisis to come and to live close to them and do life with them and grow and learn together. They've learned to live on a budget, manage their finances as well, and they also give to others, other people who are in need. And so I think that's an example of, and, and we have so many of those examples. They just need somebody to come and model something different. They need understanding in order to be able to be encouraged along the path and it's okay, it's messy, you know, and we make mistakes and we, we, we have to get picked back up again. And we've had a lot of that as well. But, but all in all, this program is, sometimes it's hard for me to believe. It's remarkable how much transformation has taken place through our Resilient Families Project. It, it's amazing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think here in the West, we tend to we tend to have such like an individualistic mindset, and, and even in amongst amongst our families, and that kind of like communal, family focused, preventative upstream work may be hard for some of us to to understand how that could possibly relate to the vulnerabilities of human trafficking. I wonder if you might just shed a little bit of light on why is it that strengthening the resiliency, removing domestic violence, and empowering families to live in, in a healthy relatedness to each other. Why is it that that kind of upstream preventative work can have a major impact on downstream exploitation? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of really common sense ones, like even just simply you know, when a, when a young girl doesn't receive the affirmation and the affection from her father, when a boy is, is angry, doesn't know how to deal with the things he's facing at school, 
the bullying that's happening or whatever the case may be, they look other places for that fulfillment that in those early years is supposed to come from mom and dad. It's supposed to come from that family context. And so when what's being modeled to them is violence, is brokenness, and their heart is crying out for something more, it's easy to be super vulnerable to the things that are being offered to me. And so in a lot of cases, trafficking today, you know, it looks very different than it has in definitely in the Hollywood context. When we have a strong family, parents who are modeling security in the home by loving one another and showing affection to each other, that creates a security that is necessary to help the development and growth and the the emotional maturity of the children in in that home as well. I think uh, the holistic nature of that has got to be overwhelming at times to to be committed to building resilient families. I would imagine probably means that there's really no end to the amount of ways that you can speak health and wholeness and offer trainings. And I would imagine with each family, it's uniquely different, but that's, that's good work. And uh, I mean, I have another story. I don't know if you yeah, have time for that or absolutely. not, but of, of a situation like that, because, you know, we had another family. It's a similar kind of a situation, but it was a tribal family in Northern Thailand as well. No Thai citizenship, parents and seven kids, five girls, two boys. Poverty, very dysfunctional, lots of health issues. The mother, the mom and dad never went to school. Just to be clear, they are Thai nationals, but no Thai citizenship. They were born in Thailand, but don't possess the citizenship documentation that they need in order to be considered Thai. Is that pretty common? It's pretty common, mm-hmm. and it, 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 it makes the situation worse in a yeah. lot of ways. It makes them more vulnerable. Sure. So, you know, the, the mom and dad, the husband and wife, were physically, verbally, emotionally abusive to each other, constantly fighting. They were separated at this point when we, when we began to become involved in this situation and were committed to, to getting a divorce. Basically, it was like, like I said in the previous example, the rejected family in the village. They're always having issues uh, that, to the point where everybody kind of gave up on them and ostracized them. No one really had hope for this family. And it wasn't that the parents didn't love their kids. It's that they just didn't know how, how to love them or protect them or strengthen them. And they thought they were doing the best they could for the family by, by handling it in this way. The older sister and mother were both victims of labor trafficking, and the 11-year-old son sold flowers at temples and in the red light district area. And all of them were, were at daily risk of sexual exploitation and trafficking. So village members and a local church ended up referring this family to our Resilient Families uh, program, to our staff. And at first, the mother was interested, but the, the dad was pretty resistant. He, they just had no vision, no skills. They just didn't have any hope. Like what, I don't see a picture of a better future for us. So our team visits their home quite a few times to sort of build trust. It it really is a lengthy process. And eventually the family committed to the program and went through just a massive transformation within that 18 month period. So now four years later, they brought all the kids home. They're all living and thriving together in the same home. School-aged kids are all in school. Parents and older siblings go to their soccer games together, cheer on their brothers and sisters. I mean, it's a very stark contrast from what it used to be. They're now seen in that village as the model family. The village chief, pastor at the church in that village refers other families to them that are struggling so that they can counsel and give encouragement. 
the mom and dad not only love each other, but like each other, show affection in front of their children. They love spending time together. The kids all say that their, their comment about mom and dad is that they have a, a brand new marriage, brand new relationship. Uh, the mom and dad are both working. They've paid off debt. They're saving money. They're giving money to others that are in need. And they just bought a piece of land. Wow. Some of the kids play on the worship team at their church, and they're actively involved in the local community church that supported them through this process. And last year, exciting news, is that the whole family received their Thai ID cards, and that opens up a yeah, ton of doors absolutely. to them. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing how just that commitment to like resiliency has this ripple effect and the, the number of ways that you just named that their lives and family unit has been transformed is almost unbelievable. Yeah, it is. I mean, from <laughs> like is. a relational standpoint, from a financial health, I mean, their faith obviously is, is a big part of their life. And I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah. 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 I love these stories. And sometimes my staff will tell me a story and I'm like, what? That's crazy. And <laughs> And then I'll get a chance to meet the family yeah. and I'll, I'll ask them some of the same questions because I want to know, like, for real? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and so, because it is, I, I agree with you. Sometimes you're just like, wow, that's, that's incredible. That's the, the, the amount of change and the contrast of before and after. You know, yeah. the before and after photos are so stark, you don't even recognize them as the same people and the same family, the same... You know, it just, it, it's unrecognizable, and that's beautiful. I love that. I'm going to ask you what is probably a redundant question, but do you think that porn contributes to exploitation and human trafficking? Absolutely, I do. Pornography fuels demand, it devalues lives, and it destroys relationships. And there's a lot of evidence of that in a lot of different areas. And I mean, I'll tell you that all the survivors we've worked with have been exploited by pornography in some way and have also struggled with porn addiction themselves through their, through their, throughout their healing journeys. And we're currently counseling an eight-year-old girl who began to look at porn on her mom's phone when in, in a remote village when she was three years old. And now she's eight years old. She's, she has been both exploited by others and has also been the perpetrator in exploiting others as well. It, it has a significant impact on the lives of those that are viewers of pornography. Pornography increases demand and fuels trafficking around the world. Traffickers use and produce porn to groom, to demean, to exploit, to instruct, to capitalize off those that they abuse. And I, I know that this topic is a little controversial yeah, in the West, just to be honest, especially in the West. But you know, research and the good work of, of organizations, at least here in the States that I know of, have been really working to shed light on the reality of what you just said, which is that the, the prevalence of pornography changes the nature of the demand for commercial sex. And we know that the commercial sex industry is one industry where you can find lots of exploitation taking place. Mm -hmm. Is that true of every case? No. Mm -hmm. But it is very prevalent. And we say often that, you know, we encounter issues of human trafficking and exploitation lurking underneath the shadows of a commercial sex industry that makes it easier to hide right. when minors are trafficked and that kind of thing. So it, it obviously has that impact. But then as well, we've been seeing, I think, especially in the midst of the COVID pandemic, when I say we, I really mean the 
the landscape of professionals in anti-human trafficking work, not necessarily the Exodus Road explicitly, but we've been seeing this growing uptick of people actually just being exploited for the sake of production of pornography. I know, just a quick shout out to Exodus Cry, if you're here in the U.S., they've done great work to call out cases of sexual exploitation of minors on sites like Pornhub and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I just hear what you say and echo what I've heard, what I've heard as well. I wonder, will you talk a little bit about the public perception of porn in Thailand? Does that create challenges? Definitely. And I think that, yeah, there, there's definitely created some challenges in terms of people's perception of, is it a, is it, is there anything wrong with it? Is there any problem with it? Is there any challenges with it? But I, I at the same time, we've been contacted by those who from different provinces that know nothing about Ezekiel Rain, but have responded to ads and things that have been posted on our Facebook profile, our, our Facebook page, who said, you know, I have, I have a problem. I'm addicted to this and I want to get free, but I don't know how to do it. I need help. And I think the recognition of the true impact, the true effects of pornography on the society is not yet fully understood or appreciated, although they're definitely moving that direction, I think. So what is your response to it? I know, what does that look like for you guys? I know you mentioned like awareness campaigns. What are you finding as an effective tool for helping to retrain? Yeah, that uh, definitely, you know, social media campaigns. It, it's hard to convince somebody who is determined to view porn that it's not a good thing. And, and so we're not trying to fight against those people or... or get into a debate with unnecessarily. But video testimonies has been one thing that's been truly helpful as well. When, we, when we've, you know, again, for in Thai, by Thai people, testimonies of people who have overcome an addiction to pornography and their journey, their process, some of those things are available on our, our YouTube site if anybody wanted to view them. I don't know if we have English subtitles or not. I can't remember. But... Um, you know, we, we're, we're teaching schools, churches, villages are inviting us to come and teach on this and to, to provide some understanding about the dangers of the whole online community and uh, what's going on out there. Parents being able to have better understanding of what's available through, through some of the apps out there and how they can protect their children. So we, we also have some pornography recovery groups some books and tools that we provide. Uh, we have some things that we've written, a couple of books that we've written for children. Uh, one of them is specifically a story about pornography that is really designed to help open up the lines of communication between parents uh, and their kids to help them understand how to respond to this issue and what the dangers truly are. And I think that even, even that campaign, even that those efforts to provide training have opened up people's, have definitely convinced some people that were maybe neutral in the past to say, yeah, I can see why this is not healthy at all. I can see why even being more aware of their own response as they viewed porn in the past, why this is not something that I want to continue to be a part of and providing practical tools to them to help them stop viewing porn, to help them to break free of addiction. Yeah, I want to kind of use that as a bit of a segue into this next um, kind of section of questions, which is really surrounding the nature of your education and training and advocacy work, but also 
it kind of calls back to something you said earlier, which is you mentioned, you know, really empowering leaders, training up nationals. I know in our earlier conversation, you used the language by ties for ties. Mm. And I wonder if you just might talk about why that methodology is so important. Well, I think, you know, you, you can't really separate culture and language. And so when we come in and we think that we can take something that's created in English, we can take our Western culture and it simply is a matter of translating the words on the page into sentences in another language and that that will have the same impact is simply just, it's not true. And so I believe that the authority that comes, the impact that is available to us when a Thai person catches the vision and understands at a, at a deep the core level and then creates content in their own language designed for that culture, the opportunity for impact increases significantly. I find that things that are designed in Thai, for Thais, for that culture, that understand the unique dynamics, the unique challenges that have to be overcome, like even these two children's books, the impact is so much greater and people connect with it. I mean, even the illustration in these children's books, the Westerner looks at them and goes, you know, that doesn't seem terribly, I'm handing these across the yeah, table to yeah, Preston absolutely. right now so we can take a look at them. But it doesn't, but, but, but the ties love that. They, they find it very interesting and compelling. And the books have been super successful. And you know what? No Westerner had a hand in these at all besides saying, hey, let's, let's, write, let's write some stories and let's do some illustration and put this together. And, and, and that's about it. Like the, it, it's ties that have been impacted by the story themselves. In fact, in some cases, the writers actually are survivors themselves. Wow! And so they they, they have, have a lived ex- lived they, experience that they right. can bring to it. They 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 experience the trauma, they experience the brokenness, they experience the healing and the wholeness, and now they have a story to tell, and they've got the the means to do it, the the form, the platform, in a story that's written well. It it really draws the reader in 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 illustration that makes sense in that culture. One of my biggest responsibilities is in investing in my staff, in serving them by helping to release them, to equip them, to provide them counsel as they need counsel, but helping them to be the ones that are out front and being successful in the work that they're doing. And that's taken a while for us to get to get here, but that's why we're really, we really promote this by ties, for ties. Yeah. We want our staff to be the ones that are producing this content in the Thai language. I want to pivot and I want to ask you a question that probably is a little bit more like industry specific. I often ask this of leaders in organizational leaders in this fight. Are there any words that you intentionally steer away from when you talk about this issue because they're just not helpful? Yeah, there are. I've already broken some of them even in this podcast (laughs) because sometimes I find that it can be confusing to the listener to know yeah. what you're talking about unless you use that word that's always been used, like victim. Yeah. We typically don't want to refer to somebody, we, we call them survivors, not victims. But sometimes it can get a little bit confusing as to what you're talking about unless you yeah. move back to that, to that word. We kind of stay away from the word rescue. And the reason we do specifically, you know, it, it's probably one of our organizational kind of things is just... There's a lot of drama involved in that word and, and what it 
what it evokes in the person who's listening. And often the person who's being rescued doesn't feel like they're being rescued. And so we've been cautious about the use of that word. But at the same time, it's again, it's one of those one of those words that if you don't, if you try to find a different word, people might, might get confused about what you're talking about as well. Another way, one for us is leaving out, it's kind of a little bit reverse, but leaving out perpetrators in our conversations and our discussion of healing and the need for restoration. This kind of jumps back to maybe what is distinctive about us in terms of our faith. And that's that we believe that God is a God of justice and he cares about the victim. I use that word victim again, just as much as he cares about the perpetrator. And he wants the perpetrator's wholeness and healing as well as the victim's wholeness and healing. Oftentimes that perpetrator, if we really back up the story, was a victim themselves and left unchecked, left that, that cycle you know, did what it always does. But what we often, what we often, our, our, our reaction naturally is to become angry with a perpetrator, with a pedophile, and justice in that situation is, is imprisonment, it is the electric chair, whatever. Purely vindictive. It's purely vindictive. Yeah. And I'm saying God's heart is different. And God's heart is, yes, there are consequences for our actions, but there is also wholeness and healing and love for that person as well. And so I think sometimes when we have the conversation about human trafficking, we're very focused on the victim, the survivor, we're focused on the perpetrator being brought to justice, but our, our, our context for justice, our vision for justice is too limited. I've given a lot of thought to what the end of human trafficking would look like, mm-hmm. right? And I think probably the number one thing that would be required is that the the systems of vulnerability that even lead someone to exploit another would have to be healed. That's right. And that is not a popular story mm-hmm. to tell. Yeah. And it takes a lot of time, I feel like, in conversation with people for them to really sit in that and think through all of the systems of, of exploitation that have even created this scenario where one person would exploit another. Yeah. And it's very uncomfortable yeah. to desire a justice that sees the restoration of the perpetrator yeah. as well. It's a, it's a place of vulnerability that not many want to go to. Yeah. But I think that we have to. I, th- I think I think We so absolutely too. have to. Absolutely. If, we, if we're going to say... We want to see the end of human trafficking. Yeah. We have to go there right. because well, it's not enough to just arrest and and place people in prison. It there are consequences for this, and and we need to hold those in our society accountable for this exploitative measures. But we also should be working towards their restoration yeah. as well. Absolutely. All right. So tell me, Joel, how can the audience learn more about the work of Ezekiel Rain, and how can they get involved? Well. Definitely EzekielRain.com. You can uh, go to our website. There's lots of information on that. We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. All the places. All the places. YouTube, you might find a lot more content in Thai than in English. And we're also putting up additional sites all the time in Thai because we're, again, it's the yeah in Thai, by Thai, for Thais uh, sort of approach that we're trying to spend a lot more energy on that as well. You can definitely pray. If you're 
a person that prays, pray for Ezekiel Rain. Um, you can give, you know, we're, we've experienced some significant growth and the opportunities for us for impact have never been greater than they are right now. But we're limited, honestly, by funding at the, at the moment. And we've got, we've got to get some, some resources set up to be able to help take us into next year and the next three years, really, as we're looking at growth, a growth tra trajectory that's pretty significant. And so besides that, I think just, you know, being involved in your local community in whatever way that you can. Sometimes I run into people that say, I really have a heart for trafficking. Well, what are you doing? Nothing. I'm waiting for, you know, to be able to go to another country or to do, but it's an issue here in the United States as well. And so we can get involved. There's ways that we can contribute in our local communities as well. So I think get involved, do something, research it, read books, understand the issue, go deeper than just what Hollywood's feeding you about it. And uh, even into some of this deeper understanding of the whys behind why perpetrators do what they do. I think there's, uh, you know, follow, you know, listen to this podcast. I think there's a lot of resources out there today that can help us get a better understanding of, of, of what we can do in our own communities to help fight trafficking. Joel, thank you. Thanks for yeah, my pleasure. I, I'm so glad that we could sit face to face and, yeah. and have the conversation. And I'm so glad that I could learn more about Ezekiel Rain. I'm always honored and encouraged to meet people like you that are in this fight and in this work. It's it's a good space to inhabit, <laughs> and it feels like an honor that uh, the Exodus Road gets to um, yeah gets to gets to share this space with you. So yeah. well, thank you, Preston. It's been my privilege to be here. Honestly, today, the Exodus Road has been uh, a part of. I mean, Matt and I were talking before before even the Exodus Road began. You know, we, yeah. we were friends back in Thailand when they lived over there, and so. We've got a long history together for sure. And, and so I really appreciate the welcome here and being able to be a part of this podcast and, and to learn from the Exodus Road as well. There's a lot of things the Exodus Road um, does exceptionally well that I want to learn and grow from for sure. Once again, thank you, Joel, for joining me on this episode of Until All Are Free. If you'd like to learn more about Ezekiel Rain and the great work they are accomplishing in Southeast Asia, I'd invite you to visit their website at EzekielRain.org. Until All Are Free is a podcast by The Exodus Road. We disrupt the darkness of modern-day slavery by partnering with law enforcement to fight human trafficking crime, equipping communities to protect the vulnerable, and empowering survivors as they walk into freedom. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Preston Goff. And the music you've heard in the intro and outro was produced and generously donated by City of Sound. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>